You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You may lose your most valuable property through misfortune in various ways. Your house, your weaponry, your spouse, and other treasures. You may be robbed of all that you cherish. But of your moko, you cannot be deprived except by death. It will be your ornament and your companion until your final day. I'm TK, your guide to the past as we uncover the people, events, and little-known facts hidden in the shadows of your old history textbooks. From empress baddies to activist profiles, turkey gods and the history of the toothbrush, tattoos, Pompeii peepees, and everything in between, you can find it all here. There's no telling how far we'll dig or how many historical facts we'll re-examine. No event is too small and no topic is too big because this is for the love of history. Hello, 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 my friend. Welcome to episode 33 of For the Love of History. I'm TK, your guide to the past. I am so excited that you're here. This is, it's like my break time right now recording this episode. Uh, I am currently surrounded by a bunch of packing boxes and furniture because I move in exactly two weeks from today's release day. I'm, I'm just really excited to be here together and truly excited for today's topic. I love tattoos. I'm sure you love tattoos. Today we're talking about tattoos. Maori tattoos in the past, present, and future. I would actually love to hear if you have tattoos. Do you have a tattoo? Leave a comment on Instagram, let me know. But I'm off topic now and I wanna get to it. So grab a beverage, put on your favorite pair of fuzzy socks because it's cold outside and let's get to it. Before we head back in time, I'd like to make some acknowledgements first. In the beginning of this episode, I'll be using the past tense to talk about our topic today only because in the beginning of our episode, we're talking about the past. But I want to make it clear that Maori people are not long gone. This is not ancient history. They still live in their native lands in New Zealand, and later on, we'll be talking about them in the present tense. So, 
With that all cleared up, let's get to it. Let's hop into our time machine and head back to the year 1250 CE. And just a little side note, CE means common era. It means the time that we're in right now. And I was always confused at the beginning of my history learning journey uh, as to why people use BCE and CE as opposed to AD and BC. Sometimes like you'll find it, you'll find both of those in history books. And really, historians use BCE and CE to avoid references to Christianity. Well, for the love of history tidbit for you, and now you know. Anyways, moving on. Welcome to the year 1250 CE. We're on an island in New Zealand, and in the distance, over the ocean, you can see Polynesian settlers rowing up in their very long boats, and they're covered in beautiful and intricate tattoos. Now, indigenous Maori in New Zealand had been there for around 300 years already, but there was no evidence of tattooing being done before 1250 when Polynesian settlers came. But the practice took off quickly. The Polynesians had no form of written language, so tattooing was used to express individuality, genealogy, life, history, achievements, social status, and rank, just a plethora of things. And at the onset of the practice, Samoan and Maori tattoos were very similar because they both came from the early indigenous Samoans in 200 CE. 200 CE was when the Samoans began tattooing. The origins of all Polynesian styles come from Samoa and Tahiti. But as time went on, the Maori developed their own style and meanings. To the untrained eye, these swirling lines and geometric patterns can sometimes seem to just be that, lines and shapes and patterns, but they're full of meaning and cultural importance, which we'll talk about more later. The word tattoo itself comes from a combination of the Samoan and Tahitian words for tattoo. In Samoa, tattoo is tatao, and in Tahitian, it's tatao. The West calls tattoos tattoos because of Captain Cook. He was a dude that sailed around the Polynesian islands, and one day he was in Tahiti, and he was watching a young girl receive a tattoo, and he misheard the word people were using. (laughs) So he wrote that down. He was like, yes, tattoo sounds great. Let's do it. So the reason we call tattoos tattoos is really just because of a mistake by this dude, Captain Cook. He just did what colonizers do and messed it all up. But the Maori word for traditional tattoos is different. It's tamoko. This is not the word for all tattoos. Tamoko is specifically the traditional tattoos and especially the ones on the face, facial tattoos worn by mostly men. Women's tattoos are called koe tehe, are the traditional tattoos worn by Maori women on their chin and lip area. Tamoko is deeply religious, and the Maori religion and tattoos are basically one in the same. As I researched for this episode, I watched a beautiful documentary about the connection of tattoos and the more, excuse me, Maori religion. 
I'll do my best to explain the connection to you today, but I highly, highly recommend watching that documentary. It's on YouTube. You'll love it. I'll put it in the show notes. So now we know the history of tattoos or tamoko and how they came to New Zealand, but let's take a look at the religious story of how tattoos came to the Maori. To tell you this part, I have to tell you about the Maori religion itself. Just throwing it out there that this is a very basic version of the pre-colonization religion of the Maori. Uh, you know, I'll leave resources for you if you're interested. You know I always do. So the Maori religion is centered on something called mana or your spiritual power. People have mana, which comes from the ancestors. Not everyone has the same amount of mana, and it can change throughout the years. They believed in two worlds as well, the world of the light, Aumarama, and the spirit world, or the underworld, Darohenga. The spirit world was created by the goddess Mother Earth, or in Maori, Papatuanuku. Papatuanuku created the spirit world because her sons were always fighting and constantly at war in the world of the light. She thought of a perfect place for her children to live in peace and harmony, where their souls would live forever. And thus, she created the spirit world, Rorohenga. But the path to this world was blocked, and it could only be opened by Hinenuitepo, another goddess in the Maori religion. Hinenuitepo would open up the path to the spirit world for the children of Mother Earth, but only if they were worthy. And tattoos or moko became a huge part of how Hinenuitepo determined if these people were worthy or not. I literally could go on and on about the religion of the pre-colonial Maori, but we don't have time now. I think I will do another episode on that, though. Let me know if you would be interested, because I think it would be pretty cool. So now we know that small but important part of the Maori religion. We've got the world of the light, the visible world, the earth, and we also have the spirit world or the underworld the world of the unseen. And now I can begin the story of how Maori people got tattoos. The people living on earth, the world of light, were living their life. And one day, a warrior named Mataora fell in love with a spirit world or an underworld princess named Niwareka. They totally fell in love, and she came to the world of light to be with him and marry him. But Mataora would mistreat his wife, which in turn made her return to the underworld. Matora was sick with guilt about the way he treated his wife, so he pursued her to the underworld, only to be greeted by her relatives, who laughed at his ragged appearance and smudged face. Matora apologized before Niwareka's family, and this act won Niwareka back. Before returning above ground, however, it was said that Niwareka's father, the king of the underworld, Uetonga, taught Matora the art of tamoko. 
he had to promise to look after the land and his wife and his family once he got these taomoko. He did, and Mataora brought back these skills to his people, and that is how the Maori came to have their very distinct type of tattoo. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel Everett Lazan. And I'm Emily Barleen. And we host a podcast called Horrible History. We're morbidly curious individuals who love to do research. And we really miss traveling. So each week, we head to a new destination to learn about a horrible event. Like in episode eight, when I take us to LA to cover a real life Batman living in his lover's attic. Spoiler alert, it's a tale of sex, jealousy, and murder. And in episode three, I cover a dancing plague in Strasbourg, France that killed over 400 people. So if you're a member of the Morbid Curious community, tune in every Thursday for well-researched historic tales about all things horrible. Available everywhere you listen. Hopefully you'll be horrified. If you've ever looked at a traditional Maori tattoo, and if you haven't, I'll put one up on Instagram, Maori tattoos from afar look like one solid flowing shape that wraps around the body. But when you get closer, you can see there are beautiful patterns. Thick lines, thin lines, swirls, effigies, symbols, you name it. Each pattern and each line is deliberate and holds meaning. The main purpose of the moko is to bind the body and the spirit and to take care of your physical body as well as your spiritual body or soul called waidura. Let me try again. Waidura. I'm doing my best with these pronunciations. Go check out the Maori dictionary to hear a better version. You know what? In fact, let me just play the Maori dictionary version for you right now. Waidura. There we go. Much better. So the lines and empty spaces of the tattoo are also purposeful. The empty space represents the spirit world, and the lines that you can see represent the world of light. The designs chosen also have deep meaning. In pre-colonization time, Tamoko identified a man's huakapapa, which means family lineage and the land that they were connected to. The main lines in a Maori tattoo are called manawa, 
which is the Maori word for heart and connects to your spiritual power. Remember the word mana from earlier, your spiritual power? Yes, these lines represent that and represent your life's journey. The right side of the face is for your mother's lineage and the left side of the face is for father's lineage. Each place on the face also holds meaning and is generally divided into eight different spaces. The center of the forehead is designated as a person's general rank. The area under the brows designates his position. The area around the eyes and nose designated his hapu or sub-tribe rank. The area around the temples served as a kind of marital status to detail the number of marriages that a man had. The area under the nose displayed a man's signature that was once memorized by other tribal chiefs who used it when buying property, signing deeds, and doing official order things. The cheek area showed the nature of the person's work. The chin showed the person's mana or prestige, and this is the area, the chin and lip is the area that women also got tattooed. Lastly, the jaw area was designated as a person's birth status. So cool, right? Like you could walk right up to a person and see what he or she was all about, which is super neat. Within these areas, the tattoo artist or tahunga tamoko, which is not just any tattoo artist, it's specifically a person who is an expert in moko, Maori tattoos. So they will put different patterns, which also hold meaning, within the tattoos. The tattoo design is only selected after a lot of consideration to one's lineage and also to the person's body. The design must complement the person's physical features and their unique shapes. Each tamoko is unique, but there are patterns that are continually used. For example, the infill pattern areas, like the black lines, there are a lot of different types of lines that you can have, and they each have their own meaning. There is the pakati, which is the dog tooth pattern, and it's representative of warriors, battle, courage, and strength. The Ahu Ahu Mataora shows talent and achievement in athleticism or sport and can also be used uh, as a representative of new challenge. You also have some standalone symbols such as the Koru, which is a spiral. The Koru depicts new beginnings, growth, and harmony and is taken from the uh, symbol of an unfurling fern leaf. New Zealand has some of the most beautiful ferns in the world and you can see the fern leaf in a lot of New Zealand branding things. I'm pretty sure the All Blacks, the rugby team in New Zealand, I think their symbol is a fern. I cannot remember and my husband loves the All Blacks and he's gonna... He's going to be not so happy when he listens to this and I forgot the symbol of the All Blacks. But anyways, Maori gods themselves are also often added into the tamoko and other moko, such as the heitiki, which is commonly known as a good luck charm. 
The tiki is also considered a symbol of fertility. This is by no means an exhaustive list of all of the different symbols and patterns and line work and effigies. So I'm, I'm going to leave a more comprehensive list in the show notes for you if you are interested. Because these symbols are incredibly important. Each line holds a prayer and represents the sons and daughters who have held the mana of their ancestors within their moko. So TK, you told us all of this history, this background, but how is it actually done? Great question. Let's get to that right now. Let's talk about the process of moko and tamoko. Like I said before, tamoko and moko come from Polynesian roots, and then they branched out from there. One thing that makes uh, Maori moko really unique is the combination of ink in the skin and scarification. Of course, moko and tamoko uses the standard poke and tap method of, of traditional tattooing, but there's also chisels involved in the situation. These chisels are called uhi, and the pigment is called wainyarahu. The chisels are used kind of both for inserting pigment and also cutting the skin in order to insert the pigment in larger areas. These instruments were once made of whale and albatross bone. According to ethnologist Elton Best, the proposed moko design was first drawn on the face with charcoal and water, and when the tonga, the expert, began to apply the moko, he would dip his uhi in, into the pigment and make incisions by tapping with a small mallet or a fern stalk, the really like thick end of the fern. And this mallet had two purposes. One was to get this ink into the skin, and the second was to clean and wipe away the blood that came out during the process of tattooing. It kind of had a flat surface on one end, and if a fern was being used, you would use the tough end of the fern as the mallet, and then the leaves on the other end to kind of wipe everything away. Depending on the pattern of the moko, there was all kinds of uhi or chisels that were used, and I'll put pictures of them up on Instagram. There's very small ones for dots and fine lines. There are wider ones for larger parts of the tattoo and filling in color, and there were more knifey, chisel-like ones for the part that's more scarification. The tattooing process itself changed, however, after colonization and certainly by 1840 or in the 1840s, metals started to replace bone in the manufacturing of uhi, aka the tattooing chisels and combs. I'm going to read to you now um, a really interesting account of the use of metal uhi during the tattooing of a really important Maori leader, and I'm going to let the Maori dictionary read this name to you because I don't want to mess it up. In 1841, Edward Germanham Wakefield of the New Zealand Company 
witnessed this happening, and he commented that the instruments used were not of bone, as they used formerly to be, but a graduated set of iron tools fitted with handles like adzes. The man spoke to me with perfect nonchalance for quarter of an hour, although the operator continued to strike the little hammers into his flesh with a light wooden hammer the whole time, and his face was covered with blood. It's really interesting that this Edward guy pointed out how very stoic this Maori leader was, and it's actually a big part of the tattooing process to not make any signs of pain or make any noise as a kind of like rite of passage, like I am a strong person that can handle this kind of thing. And let me tell you, getting a tattoo, if you don't have a tattoo, if you have a tattoo, you know. But getting a tattoo, so freaking painful. I have one on my wrist, I have one on my foot, and I have my whole back covered. And boy, howdy, when, when the needle went to my heel on my foot, I about passed out. So, and, and that was with modern tattooing technology, like having a needle just tap and tap and tap and into my face for a long period of time, I would not be able to handle it. Like hats off to the Maori people who have tamoko, like goodness gracious. It's amazing. It's so admirable. <laughs> but I digress. So before we move on, I want to tell you about the the ink itself. The ink itself is made of charcoal from wood that's native to New Zealand. That's how the black ink is made. And some of the colored inks are made out of a specific kind of caterpillar that's been infected with a special fungus. What? Who found that out? How did they know which caterpillar and how did they know which fungus it should be infected with? Aren't humans cool? Humans are so cool. Anyways, these pigments were, and in some cases still are, kept in beautiful, intricate pots that are passed down from generation to generation. So how about the process itself? In that same documentary that I was talking about, uh, you can see a modern version of a traditional tamoko being done, and it, it it's basically how it was done in the past, except people are wearing shorts and t-shirts instead of traditional pre-colonial Maori clothing. The process of getting moko is a spiritual experience and one that is so important in a Maori person's social life. So a lot of people come to see these ceremonies to encourage and pray for the person who is receiving the tattoo. Songs will be sung, haka will be performed and sung, and a lot of love and care is given to the person who is being tattooed. The person who is being tattooed is in the process of uniting their body and their soul, and it's extremely painful, but the pain is part of the process like a rite of passage. By getting a tamoko, you are proving to yourself and your people that you are make that you're taking care of your physical and spiritual self. And that means as a man, you could take care of the land and the women and the children in your life. And as a woman, it meant you could take care of your family, both physically and spiritually. 
But this practice, this beautiful practice, did not last forever. Dutch colonizers came to New Zealand in 1642. The first European to arrive in New Zealand was Abel Tasman. The name New Zealand actually comes from the Dutch word New Zealand. New Zealand is actually called Aotearoa by the Maori, the indigenous people that lived there, who were there first. And I'm sure this comes as no surprise to you, my friend, but the name of Aotearoa was not the only thing that the colonizers changed. An article on the subject written by Helen Moiwaka Barn and Tim McCrenner says this of colonization. Colonization had profound negative consequences for the health, well-being, and indeed the very existence of Maori populations in Aotearoa. Through land alienation, economic impoverishment, mass settler immigration, warfare, cultural marginalization, forced social change and multi-level homogenic racism, indigenous cultures, economics, populations, and rights have been diminished and degraded over more than seven generations. Missionaries would end up being the ones who would kill the tradition and cultural identity of the Maori and the Moko by deeming Moko as the devil's art. And I am fully tired of the phrase, the devil's this, Satan's that. Those phrases are simply excuses to kill indigenous culture and stop progress. But we're going to move on before I get heated. <laughs> By the 1870s, Moko had been hit in a huge way. It was scarcely done, and in the 1880s, there was a slight resurgence, but ultimately, by the 1920s, the last of the tattooed men had died. Many women, however, continued to wear Moko until the 1950s, but they too would succumb to colonization with the Tohunga Suppression Act. But what about now? What about The Rock? What about Jason Momoa? What about all those rugby players with the full sleeves? Aren't those Polynesian tattoos? What about all those bros getting tribal ink done in the early 2000s? All great observations, my brilliant friend. Let's talk about that. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, there was a resurgence of both traditional Polynesian tattoos and a ton of cultural appropriation. Rugby players and, of course, their tattoo artists in New Zealand, Australia, and Samoa were basically the reason for the Polynesian tattoo renaissance. Like I said, my, lo my, my husband loves rugby and spent three years of his high school life in New Zealand, so he's been loving the research involved with this episode. And in fact, one of his favorite rugby players, Sonny Bill Williams, played a huge part in this renaissance. In an interview, I'll leave a link to that in the show notes, Sonny, who is New Zealand Samoan, saw the armband his dad got after coming back from visiting his family in Samoa. Sonny said that he fell in love with it and wanted to get his own tattoo, just not his dad's version because he said it was all wonky, which is hilarious shade. <laughs> so Sonny went out and he got his own Samoan armband. He added more and more to it as the years went by and... When his fame just blew up while he was playing rugby, so did his tattoo. 
Sunny was not the only athlete or Polynesian person who started getting tattoos again. The Rock, who is also Samoan and numerous Maori in the All Blacks uh, rugby team, also got Polynesian-style tattoos. Some of them were inspired by Polynesian styles, and some of them were actually traditional tamoko and moko. Young Polynesian tattoo artists began reclaiming their heritage and getting their tamoko and moko done in the traditional fashion. But because of colonization and the erasure of Maori culture, the patterns were almost lost. These young tattoo artists went to the Maori carvers and studied the shapes and patterns we talked about earlier from the carvings of Maori gods and Maori religious buildings. The designs are almost the same, but advances in tattoo technology has made it possible for Maori and other Polynesian tattoo artists to make them more complicated and intricate. But don't get me wrong, the patterns of old have been mixed with modern techniques to suit the modern Maori culture. And through social media, more Maori and Polynesian people have access to these tattoos. But here's the thing, social media can be great for bringing awareness to different cultures, but the depth and significance of a cultural practice cannot be fully expressed in a MySpace post. MySpace was popular during this time. And as Maori people were reclaiming their culture and famous Maori and Polynesians were getting more and more tattoos, bros and other kinds of, let's be honest, white people were getting something called tribal tattoos. And they kind of fucked up the whole thing. Tribal tattoos exploded in popularity in the 90s and the early 2000s, and people who did not identify as Polynesian began appropriating the style. The name of the tattoo style itself is problematic. Tribal. Whose tribe? What tribe? There's hundreds and thousands of tribes of indigenous people all over the world. So be specific. Make it make sense. If you're listening now and you have a tribal tattoo, I'm not saying that you need to go and get it removed tomorrow. But what I am saying is that you should do the work in understanding where your design comes from. And if you're thinking about getting a tribal tattoo and you're not Polynesian, please consult actual Polynesian tattoo artists and do your research. And you know what? I am a white lady and I am not going to sit here and tell you what you should and should not do with indigenous tattoo designs because I am by no means the authority on that. It's not my culture. It's not my place to say. So if, if you are thinking of getting an indigenous tattoo, please speak to people of authority and I'll leave some resources in the show notes because this is not just art. It's cultural and it's people's identities. We have come to our final thought today, my friend. And boy, have I got a wonderful thought for you. I want to tell you about two amazing women, Nanai Mahuda and Orini Kaipara. Like I said, Tamoko and Moko in general were all but wiped out by colonizers, but has since had a resurgence 
Nanai Mahuda made history in 2017 as New Zealand's first Indigenous female foreign minister. And in 2016, she became the first female member of parliament to wear the Maori moko. After her appointment, there was a huge surge in not only female moko, but men getting the tall moko as well. But she was not the only Maori woman who has been making history recently. Orini Kaipara is the first woman with the woman's moko on the chin and lip area to present the news on a mainstream TV station. In an interview with Now to Love magazine, she said, Reading the mainstream news was a dream, and I was so excited because it represents beyond me. It's for all of us, Maori and all of New Zealand. That's it. That's all I've got for you, my friend. Thank you so much for listening today. It was a bit of a long one, but I had a lot to say. I'm very passionate about this topic, tattoos, indigenous rights, cultural appropriation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, leave a review, leave your girl some stars, send me a message, tie a note to a carrier pigeon's leg and send it off to Japan. (laughs) I just love hearing from you in any form that I can. If you feel so inclined, uh, you can head over to the Love of History Patreon and help support my work. You can head on over to For the Love of History's Instagram if you need a little fix of For the Love of History during the week. (laughs) That would be lovely. But anyways, I hope you have a lovely day. Please, please stay safe and warm. Do something nice for yourself today. Drink your water and I will see you in March, March 5th, March 5th to be exact, the day before uh, the movers actually come to my house and take all of my stuff. So uh, on March 5th, we'll be talking about the first indigenous physician, Suzanne LaFleche Picot. Okay, bye. Why is there a metronome right now? Okay. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.